Dear people of God, uh, if you happen to have a pew Bible or have taken your Bible with you, you might want to keep your Bibles open because I'll be uh, going verse by verse through portions of this scripture reading. Perhaps you were surprised that the scripture reading covered the last part of Romans 12 and the first part of Romans 13. You might have thought to yourself, is there not a clear break in Paul's letter when he moves from chapter 12, which deals with interpersonal relationships, to chapter 13, which deals with submission to the civil authorities? Yes, there is. But there is also a clear connection between these two chapters, which is often overlooked. What I would like to do this morning is to look briefly at the way these two chapters fit into the overall pattern of the book of Romans. And then note the connection between the two chapters, between chapter 12 and 13. And then in the light of that, to focus on the last verse of Romans 12. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So first of all, let's take a look at the whole book of uh, Romans. The book as a whole falls naturally into three parts, and I like to compare it to the two covers and the spine of a book like this. The first part, so you could think of that as the, uh, this, uh, this panel over here, is chapters one to eight, and it is a systematic exposition of the gospel stressing justification by faith. All of humanity has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and also falls under the wrath of God and the Jews, God's people, are no exception. The only way to be saved from that wrath of God is not through works of the law but simply to believe in Jesus Christ. That's the basic message of that first section, chapters one to eight. The middle part, corresponding to the spine of a book, is chapters 9 to 11. And it deals with the agonizing question why God's covenant people, the Jews, for the most part, did not accept the only way of being saved from God's wrath. It deals with the mystery of God's election, and it ends with the doxology of praise. Then the third part, so that's the, this cover here, is chapters 12 to 16, and it deals with the implications of the gospel for practical living. It begins with a well-known exhortation to Christians to present their bodies, that means their very selves, as living sacrifices that gives very, and gives very concrete and practical guidelines for the Christian life, like being hospitable, or not being too proud to associate with people of low position. And these chapters also deal with the proper attitude to the government, that's chapter 13, and how to deal with the weak brothers and sisters who had scruples about such things as eating meat offered to idols, that's chapters 14 to 15, and then finally chapter 16 is mainly greetings. Uh, various greetings of Paul and his associates to people in Rome. 
So we can see how the two chapters of our scripture reading, chapters 12 and 13, fit into the overall outline of Romans. They are the first chapters of the practical applications, the sections which give specific guidelines about how we should live out of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see how specific and concrete Paul gets in the part from Romans 12 that we read. Let's read again, verses nine to 13. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. So this is about love among God's people and about spiritual fervor in serving God. Then notice verse 14. Bless those who persecute, persecute you. Bless and do not curse. In other words, don't retaliate in kind to people who make you suffer because of your faith. And these words introduce the theme of non-retaliation, which becomes the focus at the end of chapter 12. But first, the apostle gives a few more specific guidelines for the Christian life. They are not in any specific order and seem almost randomly chosen. Look at verses 15 and 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Understand, you just had a death in your congregation. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. And again, these, this deals with issues of how we should treat each other in the Christian community. And these verses are very easy to understand. People who complain about Romans being a difficult book should remember passages like this. Any child can understand them. Mourn with those who mourn. But now we get to the last verses of the chapter which focus on the theme of non-retaliation. Let's read again verses 17 to 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but, be, but overcome evil with good. This section is captured in a nutshell in verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. 
Now what the apostle is saying here is not that there should be no vengeance, that the crimes perpetrated against the people of God, indeed against any human being, should not be avenged, but that God should do the avenging. The point is not that there should be no retribution against human perversity, or that crime should not be punished, but that it is God's business to take care of the retribution and to mete out the punishment. But now that we are dealing with the theme of God's punishment and vengeance, we also realize the connection between this passage and chapter 13, which talks about the governing authorities. For it is to those authorities, God's servant, which brings the punishment and vengeance of God himself against those who do evil. Chapter 13 says that the government is established by God and those who resist it, those who rebel against it, resist God. The government is established by God to commend law-abiding citizens, but to punish others, verses three and four. In fact, the civil magistrate, quote, does not bear the sword for nothing, unquote, which implies the power of capital punishment, because he, that is the civil magistrate, is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer, verse four. The King James Version here speaks of a revenger to execute wrath, which makes clear the connection with the revenge that Paul spoke of at the end of chapter 12. Okay, when the apostle says in chapter 12 that we should leave revenge to God, he probably had in mind a number of different ways in which God punishes the sinner. He probably had in mind the last judgment, when God will judge the living and the dead. He may also have thought of God's wrath as it manifests itself in the way sin reaps its own reward, the way drinking too much can cause cirrhosis of the liver, and indiscriminate sex can bring loneliness and self-loathing. But it is clear from chapter 13 that he also has in mind the judicial function of the state, which has the legitimate calling to punish criminals. So Romans 12 says that private citizens should not punish evildoers, but leave it to God. And Romans 13 says that one way in which God does this is through the courts of a legitimate government. Chapters 12 and 13 are not as unrelated as they may at first appear to be. But now, we turn now to the actual text, the last verse of chapter 12. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is clear from the context that this refers to the command not to retaliate, not to repay anyone evil for evil. If we do, we in effect cede the victory to evil and we ourselves are defeated. This is one of the hardest teachings in the Bible. The impulse to revenge is deeply ingrained in our fallen nature. We can all resonate with the popular saying, 
Don't get mad, get even. It seemed to be a basic human instinct to repay evil for evil. But the gospel commands us to do the very opposite. Jesus taught us to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies. On the cross, Jesus himself said of his executioners, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And Paul echoes Jesus' teaching in our passage when he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. There are a lot of ways in which we can overcome evil with good. When others gossip about us, we can refuse the impulse to reciprocate and concentrate instead on protecting and enhancing the other's reputation. When someone cheats us in business, we can make doubly sure that we ourselves will be scrupulously fair, even generous, to them in return. If another person leaves us in the lurch at a crucial juncture, we can resolve to be loyal and helpful to them in future. But of course, all these actions and behaviors are genuine and authentic only to the extent that we let our anger and our resentment against those who have hurt us, let it go. If we do a kind act in response to hurtful behavior only out of a sense of duty or obligation, but our heart isn't in it, we are not really overcoming evil with good. We are really still overcome by it in our hearts. Our kindnesses will be hollow, grudging, and inauthentic. In the final analysis, what the gospel requires of, of us is that we forgive those who hurt and offend us. And we are called to forgive not just once, not just 70 times, but 70 times seven. I think this is probably the hardest part of the Christian life. When you have been unjustly treated or mocked or cheated or falsely accused, or if these things have happened to your son or your wife or your friend, it's virtually impossible to just forgive, to let go of the anger and the bitterness and the resentment. At the very least, we want to insist that the guilty one should first apologize and ask for our forgiveness. But that's not what the gospel requires. We are asked to overcome evil with good and to do it from the heart, even when that evil, evil is accompanied by unrepentant self-righteousness. Now, it's obvious that this is something that goes against the grain of our fallen human nature. We need the help of the Spirit of God to forgive. And even then, it may only happen in small incremental steps over a long period of time. But it is already a victory if we can ask God to help us make a tiny step on the road to forgiveness, to acknowledge to ourselves that this is where we need to be headed on other occasions, 
God gives the ability to forgive almost instantaneously, miraculously. Many of us are probably familiar with the story of Cory ten Boom, who survived the Nazi concentration camp Ravensbrück, in which her sister Betsy had been brutalized and had died. In the end of her book, The Hiding Place, Cory tells the story of meeting one of the Nazi guards of the camp after the war in a church in Munich, where she, where she had spoken of the love of God. This is the story as she tells it. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, he said, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had, who had preached so often to the people in Blumendahl the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for, my, for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I couldn't do it. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not our forgiveness any more than, our, than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. So far the quote from Cory ten Boom. God calls us to forgive, whether slowly, step by step, or instantaneously. So the challenge for us today is to search our hearts for the anger and the resentment and the bitterness and the vindictiveness against people who have hurt us that we cannot let go. Where evil has overcome us, defeated us, and to pray God that we may be enabled to forgive, perhaps initially only set the first faltering steps on the road to forgiveness, even when we feel utterly unable to do so. 
Let us bring our helplessness to God. Let us seek the help of fellow believers, friends, elders, pastor, ministry team, and let us pray together, helping each other, that we may not be defeated by evil, but may overcome evil with good. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Shall we pray? Lord God, we have heard your words, and we've heard the message which is clear as a clarion call, and yet we resist it. Lord, help us to hear the clarity of the gospel that just as you have forgiven us, we must forgive others. And where there is resistance in our help, help, help us individually and communally. Help us to help each other so that we will at least begin to pray that you will set us on the road to forgiveness. And may your spirit, whether slowly or miraculously and instantaneously, the way it happened to Cory ten Boom, that the Spirit may work in our hearts, that we will genuinely from the heart forgive those who have hurt us. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, who did this for us. Amen.